Hi guys and welcome to episode 49 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. So Hammerhead are our new supporters and we are incredibly excited to have them on board and also you guys should be excited too because as part of this you guys can get a free heart rate monitor with any order of the Caro 2 GPS unit. All you have to do is put in the code ROADCC at checkout and then you can get that for free. So that's ROADCC, all capital letters, and then yeah, you guys can get a free heart rate monitor. So not only do we have that exciting news, but we've also got an amazing episode coming up as well. So first off, here is Ryan to talk you through who he spoke to this week as part of the race series that we're doing. Everyone, it's Ryan here, and in almost exactly a month's time, I will be heading down south from my home in County Down, Northern Ireland, to take in the brilliant crowds, always exhilarating racing, and the hopefully glorious sunshine of the Ross Talchin, Ireland's most famous and celebrated bike race. But despite the bright sunshine that greeted me when I visited the race last year, dark clouds have hung over the Ross in recent years. As George just noted, in this episode, I speak to the race's organiser, Jared Campbell, about the Ross's importance to Irish cycling, how such an important race can be faced with extinction, and how he and his team of passionate cyclists are keeping it going. And then Dave, who is increasingly becoming our on-the-road reporter, um, rather than doing a report with uh, Chris from, from the last episode where he was riding through rainy Bristol, this week he is in France with Mavic and he was speaking to and I know I'm going to absolutely butcher this name Maxi Bournot um, around the new Mavic electric bike motor which many people think is kind of a bit of a revolution in the way that e-bikes are going to work in the future um, and it was really good not only because you know it was a really interesting interview but also because once again Dave is pushing the boundaries of cycling podcasts by actually recording it on the road. So we're probably going to be doing more of these because we got some really good reception from the last episode. And I think moving forward, it kind of adds a bit more texture to what we're doing. So we're going to try and do more of them. Um, you know, so expect to hear me panting up Cotswolds Hills. Um, but whilst Dave riding his e-bike will probably be much more presentable. So without further ado... Here is episode 49 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. Now, on the last episode, I spoke with Peter Hodges from the Women's Tour a race that has unfortunately been the dust, at least for 2023, which we all hope will prove the limit for its hiatus. So in the second and final instalment of a mini-series, I have tentatively titled How to Save a Bike Race. Any similarities to a current BBC football podcast are entirely coincidental. We're hopping over the IRC for a deep dive into what I believe is one of the best bike races in the world, the Ross Tulchin. For those of you not familiar, the Ross is the biggest, longest running and most historic cycle race in Ireland. Known as the big one, it has inspired countless budding Irish pros down the years who have stood at the roadside to catch a glimpse of the vetted men of the Ross 
and it also boasts a seriously impressive list of overall winners and stage winners from the home heroes Stephen Roach and Sam Bennett to the likes of Tony Martin, John Degenkolb, Simon Yates and Jai Hindley, while last year's winner Dara Feely became the first Irish GC winner since 2008. Delivering his victory speech on the podium following last year's race, clad in the yellow jersey, Feely recalled watching the race as a child and described it as something he always dreamed of riding, never mind winning. I remember one of the stages that I was finishing in Scotland, and as I said to you before, I said back then I'd love to ride the race and finish it, but to be here, standing in the yellow jersey after winning the race overall, it's uh, an incredible feeling, an absolutely incredible feeling. But, just like his perhaps more illustrious counterparts on the continent, the Ross is much more than a simple bike race. In fact, like the Tour of Flanders, for example, the race is intrinsically linked to Ireland's rather complicated history and its sporting, cultural and political identities. The Ross, the very name of which links it to the medieval Tolchin Games, in its early days fostered the kind of all-island, inter-county competition and communal and national pride, which remain a key feature of Gaelic games such as football and hurling. Founded in 1953, the race also proved the symbol for Ireland's sporting and political divisions at the time. Its founder, Joe Crystal, was an IRA man who used this event to call for an end to the partition of the island, and controversy brought the race across the border on several occasions at a time when the IRA was carrying out a guerrilla campaign in Northern Ireland and prompting clashes with the police as he did so. As well as its broader societal implications, the Ross stood as a marker of the internal conflict within Irish cycling itself, which by the 1950s was divided into three different governing bodies and embroiled in a bitter power struggle based on Ireland's political divisions. Those divisions manifested into the creation of two national tours in Ireland, the Ross and the now defunct Tour of Ireland, which operated with very little overlap for a quarter of a century. Luckily for everyone in Ireland, by the late 1970s, those frosty relations had thawed, with Stephen Roach fittingly winning the first Open Ross in 1979, and the eight-day stage race eventually developed into a big international affair. However, like we saw last time on the podcast with the Women's Tour, the race has been a victim of the financial and logistical troubles that have plagued races across the world in recent years. In 2017, Title sponsor Alan Post, a long-standing supporter of Irish cycling, pulled out. Though careful budgeting allowed the race to go ahead the following year, the organiser's futile search for a sponsor saw the Ross cancelled for the first time in its then 66-year history in 2019. A new shorter format, down to five days from the traditional eight, without UCI status or ranking points was planned for 2020, but then of course the pandemic got in the way. The race finally returned last year to big crowds and overwhelmingly positive press coverage and with some thrilling racing to boot, summed up by multiple stage winner and 2022 Tour of Britain Sprints jersey winner Matthew Taggart who spoke to me after last year's final stage in the seaside town of Blackrock. It's like it's absolutely brilliant to see the Ross back on, on Irish roads. Um, it's a real spectacle like you see there today at the finish. Like if you get a good day here in Blackrock, Scarries, wherever it is, like the crowds are phenomenal. So um, it's classic in some atmosphere. However, despite the success of last year, the fog is yet to completely lift, 
with organiser Ger Campbell earlier this year casting doubt on whether the 2023 edition of the race, which starts on 17th of May, would even go ahead. In this episode, I will chat to Campbell about what he describes as difficult second album or difficult second race syndrome and the unsustainable nature of organising a race on a year-to-year basis amidst the current logistical and financial issues affecting organisers at all levels. A crisis that has been underlined by both the Women's Tour hiatus and the news announced after our chat that this year's Tour of Ulster has been cancelled. But Away from the doom and gloom, we'll also be discussing the race's importance to both Jur's life and to Irish sport in general, the continuing importance of passion and dedication when it comes to ensuring cycle racing can thrive and why there'll be a big party in Blackrock next month. Hi Jur, it's great to have you here on the podcast. I hope you're keeping well. Yeah, Ryan, yeah, thanks very much for having us on. Yeah, thank you very much. No problem. Well, we're finally under the 50-day-to-go mark for yeah. this year's Ross uh, until it starts in Navin. So how's everything shaping up at the moment? And uh, It might be a bit of a silly question, but are you looking forward to it? Uh, I'm looking forward to the 21st uh, of, <laughs> of, of May uh, at about 7, 7 p.m., uh, to be honest. Uh, look, every day is bringing a new issue, a new problem, uh, but it's no different than any other year, really. Uh, it's just logistical stuff and problems to crop up on a daily basis. But uh, look, we're getting there. We've an awful lot of stuff signed off on now. Uh, one of the major ones we crossed off on Tuesday uh, when we had a, <clears throat> a meeting with the the guard at the police mm-hmm. uh, and just uh, you know going through stuff with them. And uh, you know it's 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 huge to have them on board. Absolutely impossible to do without them, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we we had, a, we had a very good, positive meeting with them on on Tuesday, and and they are on board again. Yeah, thank God. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, we'll kind of get on to like the logistical concerns about this year's race a bit later. But just you know, uh, for the benefit of you know maybe some of our listeners who don't know much about the Ross or about you or or, or the recent uh, history of the race. Uh, so you took over as the race director uh, from Eugene Moriarty, uh, and so just in time, you know, they the, the, uh, organised last year's race. Uh, could you give us a bit of a background on basically your life within our cycling? You know, you raced Ross as a when you were younger, uh, your role as a volunteer uh, with Dracula Wheelers, for example, and then also how you became the take up the position you've that's currently giving you sleepless nights at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, well, look, I first became aware of the Ross <clears throat> as a as a ten year old boy, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, nineteen seventy one, and that was when uh, our local rider Callum Nulty, just up the road from me, uh, won the Ross in nineteen seventy one, and I knew nothing about cycling, I knew nothing about the Ross, but at the time that was a huge thing in the locality, absolutely huge, and uh, the following year, nineteen seventy two. Uh, the Ross, believe it or not, was was a ten day race in the early seventies. There was always a, a short, sharp stage on the Friday night, uh, which would take it through till the following Sunday week, which was a ten day. And I was brought as a as a young boy to the end of the first stage, which was into Dundalk, Dublin to Dundalk, in nineteen seventy two, and that's the first time I ever seen the Ross. Um, became very interested in cycling, and our own local club 
started up, I think around 1973, and a gang of us from the from the area took up cycling and or cycled as a youth and right through then the 70s, uh, I actually I actually rode the first the very first junior junior tour of Ireland in 1978. That was the one won by by Martin Early and the great British rider Sean Yates was there in that very first junior tour as well. Uh, I would have seen bits and pieces of the Ross then through the 70s, you know. And as a 17-year-old in 1978, uh, Dermot Dignam, the, the, the long-time race director, brought me along as as a mechanic. <laughs> I wasn't very good at mechanics, but he brought me along as a mechanic in the service car. And uh, that was the start of a real love affair with the race, to be honest. And uh, until until the gap was created, in 2018, I was in some form or other involved in every edition of the Ross from 1978 through to, to 2018. 78, I said I was brought along as this mechanic. Uh, the next three or four editions of them, I rode them badly. <laughs> uh, 79 was the first time I rode the Ross, and that was the edition won by, by Stephen Roach. Mm. Uh, and then I rode a few more up to 82, and that part of my career was finished then. But again, Got involved with the the helping end of it, and uh, I think a couple of years I looked after teams and did neutral service and bits and pieces until 1986. Uh, a good friend of mine, Noel Clark, uh, an eight time an eight time stage winner of the Ross, actually, uh, he had given up his cycling career at that stage, and we took over the role as the illustrious role of of, of route markers. Yes. And we did it for 33 consecutive editions from 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 86 right through to 2018. Uh, and then, as you said, the, the gap the gap was created. Then 2019, the previous organisers of the race found themselves in a position where they had exhausted all finances by running it in 2018 uh, with a kind of a contingency contingency fund that had been built up through previous editions. Mm-hmm. And in 2019, it didn't happen for financial reasons. And uh, we came together at the end of 2019, six of us, and we said, "Look, what can we do?" So we 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 said about we said about bringing the Ross back. If uh, the intention was to to run in 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 June 2020, and for obvious reasons with COVID, that didn't happen, and the same reason didn't happen in 21. So what started out as an eight month project in October 2019 ended up as a two-year, eight-month project. It took from October 2019 to June 2022 to to uh, to get to get it over the line. Yeah. Uh, at, at that time, it was agreed in 2019 that that Eugene Eugene Moriarty, as you mentioned, would be the race director, and uh, then stuff evolved, you know, through the years when when it didn't happen and that and Eugene Eugene's uh, Eugene had moved to, to to live in Amsterdam at that stage, and uh, it just, I suppose, January 2022, he kind of felt that it was impossible for him to carry out the role as race director from another country. Mm-hmm. So by accident, rather than intent, I ended up with the job, to be honest. Uh, that's, that's the truth of the matter. Uh, very stressful time uh, coming up to the mm-hmm. race last year. Uh, but, you know, previous... Previous people with, with with experience will tell you, if you do your job properly, 
in the weeks and months leading up to the race, as soon as that flag drops at the start of day one, well, you're on a holiday. Now, that's not necessarily true, but uh, you, you know what I'm saying. Uh, I think I might be generalizing. <laughs> generalizing, yeah. yeah. Look, if, 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 if a neutral person was to show up the night before the Ross starts, I suppose it applies to any stage race. And I can only speak from my own experience with the Ross. Mm-hmm. If, if a neutral person was to show up at the hotel where the race is based the night before the race, and you see vans around with equipment in them and bits and pieces everywhere, you'd say, how does this ever work? <laughs> uh, and that's really the truth of it. You say, how does this ever work? It works because there's 100 people that all know their 1%, and they're all yeah. t- able to do their 1% perfectly, and it falls seamlessly into place. Once once we get out of town on day one, it falls seamlessly into place. Now, okay, you're going to have issues and problems along the way, yeah. but the main part of it just falls seamlessly into place, yeah. And that seemed to be the the way it ended up last year. Uh, we'll get on to that in a wee, wee minute, but you kind of, you touched on it right at the start, just about your kind of like your background, all which was brilliantly interesting. You're kind of like coming up the 50 years of unbroken links to the Ross. Uh, but it the race itself, basically, you know, it, as, as we know, it holds legendary status within our cycle, and it's the big one. You know, and I would even argue it has that status within, you know, our sporting culture, you know, as a whole, you know, it, it's a bit of a cliche. And, and if, you know, of course, the Flemish and the French may like to say stuff like this, but it, it is a, maybe more than a bike race. It has, you know, it's got that intrinsic links to history, you know, community, even Irish identity and all. Uh, what does it mean, you know, for, quite briefly, but what does it mean to you, uh, yourself and why why is the race so special and why why is it, you know? yeah it's 64 million dollar question look mm-hmm. when 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 the previous the previous uh, organizers weren't in a position to run the race i i, I suppose the way we, we 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 took on to run the race we we were stepping backwards because obviously mm-hmm. we reduced the number of days we reduced it from 8 to 5 uh, we took away the UCI status, so it's no longer on the UCI calendar. So there was a huge difference in the financial cost of what they were running and what we intended to run. Mm-hmm. There was absolutely no way that we could see ourselves getting the kind of money to run a UCI race. Um, but come back to your question uh, about you know more than a bike race. When 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 we intended running this race, it was important to me for a few reasons, but. Number one was the respect that I have for Dermot Dignam. Absolutely, going back, as you say, nearly 50 years. And it was important to me personally to get the blessing of the previous organisers to take over this role, to take over, that we could give this a go. And we did. And uh, the reason for that being was that we were going to go ahead and run a race anyway. But it was important to me that it was the Ross, not, mm-hmm. not any other race. Uh, we could have come back last year after a four-year hiatus and called it anything other than yeah. the Ross. But we wouldn't have had the kids out the side of the road with little paper flags and all the rest of it because to them, the Ross was passing their gate. It wasn't some new thing. It was the Ross, st- steeped in history. Uh, there are different parts of the country where I suppose traditionally it's more important and holds more mm-hmm. of a special place than it would in other parts. But generally, in, 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 in terms of Irish sporting culture, 
it has it has huge traditions, absolutely huge traditions. Um, I'll give you I'll give you one example. Uh, way back the first race I went on when I said 1978, there was a stage that year from from Galway City to Clifton, and uh, that particular day there was a fisherman lost at sea off Roundstone in County Galway, and the race passed through Roundstone. Was asked to pass through Roundstone with a little bit of dignity, no noise, blowing horns, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it did. And when we got to Clifton that night, uh, the news had spread that the fishermen had been found safe, which was great. But ten, it was 10 years later before we went through Roundstone again, 1988, again on the way to Clifton. And there was a preem in Roundstone, you know, an intermediate sprint along the way. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, we were route markers and we were putting down the preparations outside this hotel in Roundstone for the intermediate sprint. And the woman that owned the hotel came down the steps said, Oh, the Ross is back. We couldn't welcome you the last time here 10 years ago. Come in and have a drink. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's you couldn't make that up, but that is the absolute truth, yeah. I think it sums it up, what it means, to, you know, to the people, the passes and the communities and all. And I think, as you even said with last year, you know, as you said, kids out with flags and, and all and, and families on the side of the road, like uh, like I was telling the, you know, people who lived, on you know on the circle and black rock and they were just sitting out with like deck chairs and stuff watching the race and i think you know with that kind of thing is because it's a ross that's why you know yeah. it draws people in still you know yeah. today yeah. yeah well one of the reasons that you know obviously there was a financial reason for mm-hmm. taking it off the uci calendar because you're compelled to do certain things and your dates are probably more restricted and everything but uh my argument even i suppose during the unpost years, where there was pro teams coming over, you know, they went, they went, they went war tour teams. They went even pro county teams. There were county teams, but basically the bottom tier pros. Some great riders came, but they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't household names when they came here. Some of them went on to become household names, but they weren't household names then. So we go to whatever we go to Kilogland in County Kerry, and a Frenchman wins the stage. Uh, that's all that matters to the to the to the bystander on the side of the road. The, the ordinary Kerry cycling supporter or, or, or sports supporter. Ah, oh, mm-hmm. a fellow from Fran- France won. He doesn't care that he's a continental rider. Or, he's now he's yeah. a visitor from France, and you know uh, yeah. that's what was important to me that you could still do that, but reduce your costs by not not having to pay on on bringing in the county teams because uh, the the history and the culture. Of the race, the special history and culture that's around the race preceded any any pro teams coming in. If you know what I mean, you know, the, at the mm-hmm. essence of, at the heart of it for the first thirty years was was solely the county rider. You know, yeah. and I suppose a little bit last year. I suppose we we went backwards last year, if you like, but by doing that, and four of the five stages was won by Irish riders, and the race itself was won by a rider on a county team. Yeah. That created far more buzz than there was any county teams coming, you know. That's yeah, my opinion. I'm, so, I'm sure that someone will have a counter-argument to that, but uh, it did create more of a buzz because people knew the riders in the race, etc., etc. Well, exactly. And I think uh, this, I, I think that's a really interesting point that you brought up because I was actually going to ask you about that because obviously you said about a lot of riders who ended up becoming household names. You're like, so Tony Martin, last year's Giro winner, Jai Hindley, he's won a stage at the Ross. 
And you look at like kind of Lucas Postelberger as well, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, and you see, you know, these big names, but obviously they weren't big names at the time, but, it, it, you know, that kind of the UCI status, as you alluded to, where there were points on offer, uh, you know, the longer stage race. And last year, of course, it, there was that, it, it definitely did, as you said, have, there was a change of feel, feeling about the race. As you said, it maybe went back to what it meant to you when you first you know, heard about it when you were 10 and like, and even, you know, Darfi Lee, who the winner last year, he was the first Irish winner, you know, for 15 years or 14 years uh, since Stephen Gallagher in 2008. Yeah. And do you think, like, as you said, some people might argue maybe long-term it's not maybe the best kind of tactic, but did you think those changes, making the race three days shorter, making it more Irish again, if you, if you want to look at that, but county riders uh, doing well, uh, do you think that benefited the race uh, in this particular moment when you know you're you don't have a title sponsor uh, and any of that in this you know four year absence? Do you think the way last year's race turned out is, was for the best? Yeah, I think so. Uh, there's there's two parts of that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of going backwards to go forwards, if you like. Uh, absolutely, the 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 coverage and the feedback we received last year. Uh, because we kind of went back to its roots and yeah, you're going to get some negative comments, but I'd say it was 90% to 10%, you know, that, that mm-hmm. people said like, it, it's kind of back where it belongs. It's, it's back in the hands of the county rider. The rider, Irish riders can compete again, etc., etc. Um, the second part of the question is that, you know, cutting it by cutting it by three days was purely financial. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the way we, we, we said we have to start some point we go in five days but the intention I suppose setting out last year was that if we could raise enough finance that we would automatically go back to eight days but the feedback was so last year particularly from we'll say the ordinary Irish guy who sets out to become a man of the rest, mm-hmm. uh, that five days was, was perfect mm-hmm. and that was part of the, the positivity around the race last year was that the five days was perfect uh, you know, there aren't many uh, UCI races um, between, you know, you have the Grand Tours, which lasts three weeks, and then you have the smaller stage races, which are five or six days. There's actually nothing in the UCI calendar that's kind of the length of the rest, eight or nine days, like. Yeah. Uh, and the there was. Races, but that's about it. You know, yeah, and I, I think, I think, I think. It could be wrong, but about maybe five, six, seven years ago, the the Ross was kind of given special permission by the UCI when it was on the UCI calendar to maintain that eight day status because mm-hmm. uh, any other race at the time were five or six day, or then you went straight to the Grand Tours. So it had a kind of a unique, a unique number of days. And uh, but we're in no we're in no rush to go back to that. Absolutely no rush to go back to that. Well, the finances won't allow it anyway. But the, even if we had to get finance more finance this year, we, we, we wouldn't have went back to eight days this year. We, we're going to go with five days again. I'm quite happy to do that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you, you talk about like the positivity, and I, I definitely got the sense that it was overwhelmingly positive, the response to last year's race, and a lot of that kind of was also directed towards you and your, your organising team, like even on the podium in Blackrock, you know, Derek Lee, he was saying about how you know, if it wasn't for you, the race wouldn't have been on the road. What, 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 how did that feel after months of 
you know, stress uh, and anxiety about, about look, I said to you earlier, I wouldn't have never done this. If a, if a pro race came to Ireland in the morning, a world tour pro race, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be asked anyway, don't get me wrong, I don't hold that high a status, but if someone asked me to be the race director on a an imaginary five-day race that's coming to Ireland, then we have loads of money to run it, I wouldn't take on that job. I would have absolutely zilch interest in taking on that job. I did it because it was the Ross. No other reason. And I attended, one, two of my sons were riding in the National Junior Road Race Championship in Blackrock in 2012, 10 years before last year. And it was such a special day, and all it was was the National Junior Road Race Championship. Uh, and I said, if I ever get the chance, you know, I'll bring a stage of the Ross here. And I always thought for months before the race last year that Black Rock had the potential to be special. And as we approached the circuit last year, we made the last right-hand turn coming onto the circuit with 2K to go to the finish line or whatever. And I was in the race director's car, obviously, and it was, my son was driving me. And the more we were getting into Black Rock, the, the more the crowds of people were getting. And it was my intention to get out of the, of the car on the first passage through the through the finish line, see was everything okay, etc., etc. And I welled up so much in those two kilometres. I said to Karen, I said, you've got to keep driving for another lap. I can't get out here. Absolutely can't. I wasn't ready for it. And uh, even when I did get out, it was it was quite emotional. I have to say it was quite emotional that, you know, look at the crowd that's come to see us. We haven't been here in four years. We've done something right. That's That was the feeling. And, you know, I did an interview with Paul Kimmage that was supposed to be for half an hour before the race last year. And he, Paul Kimmage came to my house at five o'clock and I know him since we were kids and he didn't leave till nine. And uh, he said to me, the last question he asked me at the time was, you know, what to you will make this race a success? Or how will you gauge the success of it? And he said, on the Saturday night, when we were, wherever we were last year, and the riders are all preparing for the, finale for the last stage into Black Rock if they're all searching me out and shaking my hands and said that was great I want to come back next year I said that's that's a success to me and nothing else matters the, the UCI points nothing that's all that matters nothing you know yeah and, and that's definitely how you know ended I'm, 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 I'm shocked that Kimmage talking for so long it's not like him <laughs> uh, yeah but, but yeah but I think you're absolutely right and I think that kind of the way the race was last year, everything it had that kind of positivity about it, which was you know, you know, really infectious. I think uh, with everybody involved and even just standing on the side of the road, I think it had that kind of atmosphere. And uh, and you know, you're right to feel kind of like emotional about it because it was it was a great you know achievement. Uh, you know, last year, of course, you have that kind of the praise for it, the good media coverage, but then. Even then, uh, after the success of last year, it, it kind of the race is still continuing to suffer from, you know, sponsorship problems, funding problems. For instance, I think you said that you know Cycling Ireland were one of the big contributors to last year's race. Uh, you know there were concerns about how much money you were going to get from them this year, and in January you said that you were only ninety percent sure that the race would even go ahead. 
yeah. you know, and that even earlier this month as well, I think, uh, yeah. you told Ian Stokes that without a title backer, you know, without a title sponsor and relying on the jersey sponsors and all that kind of thing that, that cover the cost, this current situation is unsustainable. The current financial situation is unsustainable. So what is the current lay of the land when it comes to still organising the race? You know, Cycling Ireland, as I said, they, 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 they gave over the normal. They, the race has always been grant, grant aided by Cycling Ireland, and that was even through the, the years when it had a title sponsor. There was always, there was always money came through Cycling Ireland, which would have come from at the time the Irish Sports Council, towards the international element of the race, and but Cycling Ireland went over and above that. They were as anxious to get it back on the road as we were, uh, and it was agreed at the time both from them and us, that it was only ever going to be a once-off thing. Now, mm. we went back to them this year and we applied in the normal manner for for, for, for the normal grant. And we have been granted for them, but we, was, all of a sudden, there was a, between between what we had available to us last year overall and what we had available this year, around Christmas time, we were looking at about 60 grand short. So... With the kind of money we were raising <clears throat> from from sponsors and the like, sixty grand was not going to happen. Yeah. So we did reach out to a few people, and the first thing we started doing then was see without affecting the the mechanics of the race, how can we bring some of the costs down? So I have to say we were successful. The first part of that was it's in May this year as opposed to June last year. And we reckon we're saving about five or six grand on accommodation mm-hmm. for that reason alone. Uh, we've made a few other tweaks. Uh, stuff we did last year and had to buy last year, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, that we won't have to buy this year. Overall, we probably cut 25 grand off the costs. Right. And then we went to one of the, the sponsors who, 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 who sponsored one of the the classifications last year and we asked them would they step up to, to to yellow jersey sponsorship for this year which will all be announced in the coming weeks but mm-hmm. uh, and they agreed they agree again it's a bit like certain Ireland last year they agreed as a once-off that they will do it and we, we we got that and then we had a meeting with uh, sport ireland about two weeks ago and we reached out to them looking for direct funding from them uh, to get us out of trouble. And ironically, the, the day that the meeting was scheduled for was one of was the day that Shane Stokes ran, ran one of those articles about that we were closing the gap and we were still 15 grand short or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he had read the, the article that morning and he said, look, we're happy to help. We're happy to help and get us over the line. So Sport Ireland are, are, are the sponsors of one of the classifications this year, yeah. And uh, we picked up bits and pieces here and there. Like when you're trying to build it brick by brick, a grand or two grand is huge. Like, do you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. If you can reach out to someone and say, look, we need 150, 160,000 to run this race and you can get in one fell swoop, it's great. But doing it this way and you get two grand here and you get two grand there and you save five grand, that's like getting 10 grand. Like, uh, Look, we've we've achieved our goal. We have enough money just about to get it over the line this year. But going back to what you said and what I've said on many, many times, <clears throat> it is absolutely unsustainable to do this going forward. Absolutely mm-hmm. unsustainable. Because for the six weeks after Christmas, we spent begging for money for the financial end of it. 
Whereas I should have been just solely concentrating on the nuts and bolts of the race. Now, I was doing bits and pieces with the nuts and bolts of the race, but it, the most of it was money related. And there was a lot, mid-February, from, from mid-February on, there was a lot to catch up on around the, the nuts and bolts of the race. And we've caught up on that now, and we've we've revisited the route again. We've been around the route and twice, and now we're going again on the 21st of April. Uh, and when I say the nuts and bolts, part of the nuts and bolts of the race is that accommodation mm-hmm. is so tight now in Ireland uh, due to the migrant situation housing the ukrainians and people that need need the beds but the amount of beds that's available to the ordinary punter is less and less so uh, it's difficult to accommodate 500 people like and it is mm-hmm. close on 500 people uh, but look we, we, we'll make it work and i'm sure i'll get the buzz out of it again like i did in black rock last year but the around the financial end of it is totally unsustainable you know it, lots of the things this show was that a little bit like the, a little bit like the music industry. I'd say the the difficult second album syndrome. Uh, you know, you know, where I'm coming from yeah. on that. Like, you know that, that we did this last year and that, but maybe maybe we won't get that. You know, he got something for nothing off someone last year. Maybe they won't give it to us for nothing this year. But I have to say, in most cases, they did. And uh, look, it's testimony to the, to the lads on on the group with me that they go out and they beg stuff and they come back and they get it and. But as I said, this is not going to go on forever because we 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 are already talking to people. I think it was it was probably a mistake a little bit on our behalf last two mistakes. Uh, one was that we had nothing rolling in place prior to the race last year, gearing towards this year. It was totally okay. focused on 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 last year, whereas this year we're kind of looking at twenty twenty four already, mm-hmm. and that that was a mistake. And I, the second mistake was that. Because of the absolute hype that was around BlackRock last year at the finish, driving home that evening, I absolutely believed that the sponsorship was going to fall out of the skies with us over the over the next few weeks. But that never happened. Uh, probably doesn't happen. But that was being totally naive and but I thought it would, but it didn't. Absolutely didn't. And then there was it was let lie too long, and all of a sudden we were in the same scenario again. You know, so. You learn by your mistakes, and we will be working on that a whole pile earlier towards 2024, yeah? Yeah, because you say that about, you know, so much of the attention being drawn towards getting the funding. Uh, you know, they even put the race ahead. And you mentioned some of them, but for people who might not be, you know, whose kind of understanding of a bike race is watching it go past on the side of the road, what are, like, some of the nuts and bolts you mentioned a few of them accommodation uh, policing earlier as well what are the types of nuts and bolts that were basically put on hold until you knew that you got a money to kind of secure them well the, the accommodation is the main one that's that that is the biggest single cost mm-hmm. factor and when when i say accommodation it's accommodation for our own race officials who are all volunteers don't get paid etc etc they get their bed and breakfast and they get their diesel money in 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 fifty percent of the cases, a lot of the, the officials bring their own cars. So that's how that's how de- dedicated they are. Um, the, the nuts and I, I said earlier we had a meeting with the, the police two weeks ago. So there was a lot of things we just couldn't finalise until I had that meeting because you could pick out a, what you think is a brilliant finished location in one of the towns and the police wrap it straight away. Like so, then you have to go changing all the plans. So like. I know two of the venues we're going to this year, 
uh, I know one of them were on a better fourth choice location for the finish. It's the same town, mm-hmm. but it's the fourth the fourth choice location. Uh, one of the towns were not getting near the town at all because there's, there's major roadworks going on within the town. It's a long term project, and we're actually going to have to finish on the edge of town. It's not ideal by any means. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police are quite happy about it, but I'm not. But we just have to live with it uh, because we're getting money off the local councils to go into that area etc etc as i said it's not ideal but going forward that's something again the nuts and bolts of the race it's something that you have to possibly look look at going forward whereas the big major urban towns in the country they're getting more difficult to get into the center of because you know there's more people there's more traffic mm-hmm. uh, a lot of this a lot of the main streets we'll say now are more pedestrianised, they've got more street furniture, cobble lock and all that type of stuff, and they're not conducive to the finish of a, of a bike race. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, you do put people out, and we go into the more you get into the centre of a town, you're putting out shopkeepers, and etc, etc. So, I think going forward, you're probably looking at maybe finishing in smaller towns, where you might be more welcome, that it would be a real rarity for something like that coming to a small town, yeah. and then you would move out of that small town for accommodation purposes because obviously you go to a small town and they wouldn't have the facilities or the accommodation to house the race but you know it's that's not ideal either because when you go to these towns you're depending on you know funding from the local councils or chambers of commerce or whatever and it's not nice to go into a town and then everybody just move out of it either but that's something that it swings and roundabouts it's just the juggling of the whole thing you know and then you know we it's it's close on 100 people it takes to run the race uh, a huge fear I had last year was that after four years that it would be difficult to, to get the band back together because, mm-hmm. you know, people, especially during the pandemic and that got used to a different lifestyle and got used to doing different things with their week's annual leave, et cetera, et cetera. But actually that wasn't an issue at all. Let's say, I'd say 90% of the crew we had on the race last year were also on it in 2018. Now, due to financial constraints, we had to, we had to reduce the number, but we kept the essential ones that the, the, the safety of the race certainly wasn't compromised, you know. But mm-hmm. some of the, you know, the frills and bows we'd say around it, we had, we had to drop. But, um, yeah, the, dealing with stage-end towns can be difficult. Uh, when you set out and you do the route initially, well, then you've got to go and visit. You've got, you've got to get someone in, in, in each of the towns to, to take on the role as stage-end coordinator in that town and, Liaise with the police locally and the councils locally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, that's a huge part of the nuts and bolts. Uh, the last two weeks, two and a half weeks, a huge part of the nuts and bolts has been putting the putting the entry list together uh, because we're we're maxed at thirty five team. We're maxed at one hundred and seventy six riders by UCI regulations, and uh, to us that's thirty five teams of five riders. And going back to what we spoke about earlier about you know, giving the race back to the Irish rider. We had to get the balance right between places we offer to teams coming in and, and keeping enough spots that you, you wouldn't be in a position that, to say to any Irish team, we actually don't have a place for you. So at this moment in time, that has worked out perfectly because, yeah. as I said, we're maxed at 35. At this moment, we have 33 teams confirmed. There's two spots there. And there's absolutely no doubt that they'll be filled in the coming weeks because... Uh, certainly one of them will be filled with an Irish team. I've no doubt that there's three, four, five guys going to get together that can't get on teams and form a composite team. And, and it's nice to have a place there for them. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, there's loads of there's, you've got to deal with the medical crew. You've got to make sure that they're on board with you. The guards is a huge one. Um, transport, believe it or not, is a deal because you've got to get there is there is a, a special policy uh, available from from Southern Ireland that uh, on top of a, a private policy that someone would have driving a car that they will give you extra cover for the duration of the race. Uh, for, for 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 a premium, so there's maybe 50, 60, 70 vehicles has to be covered on that, and that takes huge work. Colin Wrigley does all that for us. Um, he he do, he puts all that together. So you got to match up driving licenses to cycling licenses to registration plates, and it's 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 a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Yeah. No, there's all the hidden details. I think the average punter might not know. Uh, just on you mentioned about like last year after the euphoria of BlackRock and all that and kind of expecting that it would lead to kind of sponsorship. And I think, like, we've seen across the you know, UK and Ireland, uh, you know, even on the continent as well, races are struggling at the moment. Like, uh, I'm sure you've kept up to date, like, the Women's Tour in Britain yeah. is launched a crowdfunder to ensure yeah. that it goes ahead this year. And I'm actually speaking to one of the organisers of it as well. Uh, why do you think so many bike races and even ones that get a lot of coverage or on TV like the women's tour are struggling or feeling the strain when it comes to sponsorship Um, well look the GAA is regardless of whether you love them or hate them the GAA mm. is the biggest organisation in Ireland the biggest sporting organisation in Ireland and the, the like our, our event is, is relevant to rural Ireland it's relevant to all Ireland, but so is the GAA. So the GAA have the the, the companies wrapped up sponsorship wise that that are relevant to rural Ireland. People that has the the, the, the companies, uh, whether they be supermarkets or insurance companies, that that are relevant and have a branch in every town in Ireland. The GAA have all them wrapped up. Uh, the IRFU, the rugby team, has been hugely successful over the past few years. So success follows success. That they, they have. They have uh, good sponsorship deals. Uh, the Olympic cycle, the Irish Olympic Council, have good sponsorship deals on board. And when, when you sign up for for them, you're on a four-year cycle. And the last one actually was a five-year cycle because of the, the, the delayed last Olympics. But, uh, you know, it's a dream to get... It's a dream to get a sponsor, a title sponsor, number one. It'd be really a dream to get the, 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 the multi-year deal. Um, but, you know... The Ross was very lucky in that from the early 80s right up until 2018, like they had FBD insurance for nearly nearly 30 years and then I think eight editions of the Impost. So for nearly 40 years, the money worry wasn't there. I'm not saying they never they ever had enough money like, our, like any of us, but they just had to concentrate on the nuts and bolts of the race. They weren't looking over their shoulder saying, we hope we have enough to pay for this, you know. And that's a situation and a scenario I'd love to get back to. Uh, look, we can only hope. That's all we can do, Ryan. We can only hope. Yeah, uh, also I was going to ask you as well. Uh, the you know, well before we wrap up, is how optimistic are you then about the future of the RAS and and where do you see it in five to ten years' time? What position would you like it to be in in five to ten years' time? I'd certainly like it to be financially stable. That's number one. Whether it would be a whole pile different than it is now, in other words, 
a five day with a mix of Irish county teams and regional teams coming in from 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 elsewhere. I personally am in no rush to get it back to, onto the UCI calendar. Now, there are, there are probably people that will disagree with me, and I won't be doing this forever. So who knows what I'll be doing in four, four or five years' time. And if, Like, the Ross Talton doesn't belong to anybody. It, that's the way I look at it. I'm doing this for the love of the event, and I'd hope that someone else will do it after me uh, for the love of the event. It, it's, it, it doesn't belong to any club. It doesn't belong to any association. It belongs, it belongs to the sport in Ireland. Uh, I suppose it's unique in that way. Do you know, it's unique in that way that it's not someone from Drogheda that has to run it or it's not someone from Cork or from Banbridge or whatever. It's whoever steps up to the mantle at that particular time. Uh, look, I'd love it to be financially stable and I'd love it to see it, to, to keep it going in, in the vein that it's going for the moment. Uh, as I said, whether that will be acceptable to everybody going forward or not, who knows. But uh, look, the fact that uh, the hope that it would continue uh, is hugely important to me. It's it is absolutely hugely important. I'd have thrown me, I'd have thrown me me head at this now months ago. Uh, only it's to us. If it was any any other event, uh, I, I would have thrown me head really. So as you guys are aware, the Road TC podcast is currently in association with Hammerhead. So. We've looked at their Karoo team on the site, and it is the most advanced cycling computer available today, with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. Hammerhead's exclusive climber with predictive path technology feature lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time, with or without a route loaded. Seamlessly and wirelessly import routes from Strava, Komoot, and more. You can route, reroute, or create pin drop routing on the fly, all with turn-by-turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. The Karatu's new e-bike integration brings detailed battery usage data right into your display, so you can fuel your most epic adventures and explore your range with confidence, something that I'm sure Dave will be particularly excited about. Uh, tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Karatu as their trusted riding companions, including women's world tour team Canyon SRAM and team Israel Premier Tech. Hammerhead athletes keep on course and stay aware of upcoming elevation changes with their Caro 2 devices. Hammerhead's Caro 2 has been named top GPS cycling computer across the industry for the last three years and continues to be a top choice for serious cyclists around the world. Right now, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Caro 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code ROADCC, all in capital letters, at checkout to get yours today. So remember, use the promo code RODCC, that's R-O-A-D-C-C, all in capitals, at checkout to get yours today. Well, I'm out in France in Annecy, and I'm with Maxime Brunon from Mavic, and we're riding, well, I'm riding, he's got an acoustic bike, but I want an electric <laughs> bike, an electric road bike, powered by a new Mavic motor, the new Mavic Xtend. So this is a bit of a bolt from the blue for all of us, Maxime. We weren't expecting this. No, it's a surprise. We are full of surprise. <laughs> we are following our DNA of uh, innovating and trying to improve the bicycle world, let's say. And this is a, this is a good uh, example of what uh, we can achieve when we think a little bit out of the box. 
Yeah, and it's not your first flirtation with electronics. We all know about the, uh, <laughs> the Mechtronic components back in the, um, yep. in the 1990s. You're, you're right, that's good examples of uh, what, what we can do when we get out of wheels. <laughs> yeah. And uh, indeed, we launched the first uh, electric shifters uh, in the 90s. Did a, a new one, a wireless, for the first time ever in the very late 90s, 99 exactly. Did some other things uh, within electronics, and now it's something very different in the world of uh, e-bike. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're looking at here is a really lightweight motor system. It's 3.2 kilos as a full system. Yep. And that's with a 360 watt hour battery. So yes. a similar weight to the e-bike Motion X20 system, but mm -hmm. with, a, with a much bigger battery. Yeah, 3.2 kilos for the total system with a 360 watt battery. And uh, I think the, the, the most interesting part of the system is the drive unit, which is super small, very powerful, and super light. Absolutely, and what we're talking about here is a mid-motor, not a hub motor. So exactly. this is a mid-motor, fits into, uh, well, we're riding uh, a sort of converted BMC road machine at the moment. So BMC have been your partner with this, with your frame partner yep. with this project. Yes. And this bike I'm riding is a Duro SDI2. It's a nice build and the new... Um, you got the SLR32. SLR32 wheels, thank yep. you. <laughs> Weighing in at 9.73 kilos, this bike. Mm -hmm. So under 10 kilos for a full build with a reasonable battery that will give you a decent range on, a, on an electric bike. Yes, uh, in the testing that we've done with this... Uh, 360 watt hour battery. We're able to achieve up to 3,000 meters of continuous climbing, which is, I think, a record for an e-bike with such a battery. Let's talk a little bit more about the um, motor because one of the one of the really interesting things about it is that it uses a standard Shimano Holotech crankset. So any of the Shimano Holotech cranksets will fit. I've got a Durace one on here, but all the way down to 105 Tiagra. Claris, anything will fit yeah. through there as long as it's got the standard Holotech axle. Exactly. It's the only mid-motor on the market that's not integrating the uh, spindle axle from the crankset. So you can just slide in the regular Holotech axles that comes with standard Shimano crankset. Yeah. And that of course means we can run a two-by system like we're running here. Two by or system you can run with... a one-by-gravel system exactly. or, a, or a mountain bike group set as well. Yeah, and then you maintain a it's just very, very standard Q-factor, so there's no compromise on that, uh, on that spec. That's great. And the motor itself, very small, so it's basically a cylinder, uh -huh. and the diameter of which is about 87 millimeters, is that correct? This is correct, yeah. So it really is very unobtrusive in this BMC frame, a very small motor, mm -hmm. and you can hear a little, probably hear a little bit of a whir from the, uh, the motor as we're chugging up this hill, but <laughs> it's really not very noisy. And obviously this is a pre-production sample, so yep. we're not going to be seeing these released into the wild for, probably for another couple of years. Yes, exactly. What you're writing here is a working prototype. I mean that the development is fully made. We are now launching the industrialization phase. And we're also looking for partners to put that, uh, that model to the market. Partners on the OEM side, that's our business. <laughs> but also partners to help us uh, sustain the, the projects to the end, so financial partners. I mean, let's talk a little bit more about the technology in the motor. So it's using a, quite a small motor with a very clever 
cycloidal reduction gear. Exactly. Which turns the, R uh, the RPM of the motor down from about four and a half thousand revs to uh -huh. whatever we're putting out now, about yep. 60 up this hill. So that's a very, very simple system. Also very low friction. Mm -hmm. And it also has a mechanical clutch in. Exactly. Which completely isolates the motor from the drivetrain when you're not using the motor. That's totally it. So it's, uh, the drive unit is very compact, very small. It slides into a frame that has a standard width for the bottom bracket. So you can imagine everything that we've put in in that small space. And so it's kind of a donut construction. We have a donut rotor stator, so the motor that turns to very high speed, which uh, speed and power is then converted to a standard cyclist RPM by a cycloidal reducer. And all of that is controlled of course, by the PC bot that has the same shape as a donut. And as you say, what's very interesting with it is that we know that on the road, on gravel, and on many occasions, on other bikes, you will also ride above 25 kilometers an hour. So what was really important for us was that the motor would disengage totally, creating zero drag, zero friction, not just less friction, but zero friction. So when, you're, when the motor is off, the only friction you get comes from the bottom bracket bearing. Which is only about half of a watt, something yeah. like that. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and you can really feel it when, when you go above the 25 kilometers an hour, that mm -hmm. it really does feel like a, just like a normal acoustic bike, as yeah. it should. And yeah, so the system is controlled by a single unit on the top tube, a little bit mm -hmm. like the e-bike motion, but with two buttons, a so plus and a minus for going up and down. And on my bars, I've got an iPhone, which is telling me that I'm putting out 201 watts and the motor is assisting me with about 205, so about 100% of uh, assistance there. Yeah. What was very important for us was to keep the bike as natural as possible. And part of that is achieved through a, an integrated parameter. Most mid-motors and motors in general have a torque sensor, but very often they are not so accurate. So it was very important for us to integrate a power meter that would be the same accuracy as the power meter you can buy on the market and use for training. And thanks to that, we're able to tell exactly the power that you put from your legs and the motor instant instantly adapts the output that he has to put in complement to your legs. And the power meter is as accurate as, a, as an off-the-shelf power meter, so plus or minus yep. 2%. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get chased by a dog. <laughs> No, I think we're going to survive. When I stop pedaling, I get a bit of a kick mm -hmm. on, the, uh, on the chain set. That's one thing that we need to improve a little bit again. Uh, it was much worse than that a few, uh, a few months or years ago. But now in mode three, when you stop pedaling very uh, instantly, like not, yeah. not progressively, so if you have to brake hard at the, the stoplight or whatever, you can feel that little kick. Yeah. But it's something that all the testers have told us that you get really easily used to it. Yeah. And it's one of the drawbacks that you have to cope with to have this really reactive and natural thing. And you are able to uh, ride with, with power on the, on the two rings, on the two chain rings. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah it works well. Actually, for now it works better on the small ring. We still okay. have a few software adjustments to do when, uh, when you're riding the big gear, the big ring. It's because of the way the, 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 the power is uh, it detected. Okay. And so we have to improve the algorithm that 
that uh, detect when you're going on the big ring. So it's more to do with what the power meter is doing than it, what yeah, the motor is exactly. doing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because and then the motor will react to what the parameters to what the power meter says. That's why if uh, we don't measure perfectly the power on the big ring, it can have a yeah. slight offset in the power and the way the power is delivered. But most of the time, you don't even feel it. But we know. Yeah. <laughs> we like to well, do well, things You perfect. say you've done, what, 120,000 kilometers of yeah. testing on this motor Yeah, now? on a cumulative. It was about it, yeah. Yeah. It is about it and counting because we are still riding. Riding and we have, a, I think, 10 bikes today out. Yeah. Riding for endurances. What is really noticeable is that it's very good when you're moving, like, so we're now doing, like, over 20, 20 about 28. Yeah. It's very noticeable that you don't notice the motor cut out at that point. Mm. It's a very smooth transition. <laughs> Super smooth, yeah. yeah. Also, when it uh, when it brings when it takes back the, the 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 power, it's super smooth as well. So, are there any other specific issues with the motor at the moment then that you're you're trying to iron out, or is it kind uh, of more or less at production ready? I would say we're missing a few things like the handlebar remote. Yeah. Uh, the app is not complete yet, so that's more software development. But from an app point of view, yeah, we need uh, to make the whole um, data system, the, the cloud system that that we have to get the information so from the bike. Data that, uh, yeah, all of these are recording all the time, so they're recording. It's recording everything inside inside the inside the motor itself. We've got yeah. some memory for that, and when you finish the the ride from your phone or from your uh, Garmin when it will be running, yeah. it sends it to the cloud. Okay. And then we have to organize all those data so that dealers can have access to some of those. Yeah. And that our service center can have access to everything so it knows exactly what's, what has gone wrong during a ride. Sometimes right. there are errors that are automatically corrected, but we need yeah. to know. Obviously, we're riding road bikes today. <laughs> Do you see it predominantly as a lightweight kind of enthusiast motor or do you do you see that there's a, a market for this also in kind of commuting we see, I mean, we mountain see, um, biking as well there, there is one uh, one market for commuting that is not uh, that is not really picked up yet because there was no solution for it is the lightweight commuters yeah and we think that we have a good solution for that with a big range of use so that you don't have to charge it every day <laughs> And uh, light enough so that for pure urban people living in a, in a flat in an apartment who wants to keep their, their bikes in their apartments, it's easy to, to carry. Yeah. And so today uh, it's not easy to find bikes below 15 kilos, but as you've seen the one in the room, at 12 kilos we can offer something uh, pretty nice. And we see also all those uh, mountain bikes that are light support mountain bikes. Yeah. So we're not quite there yet, it requires a bit more development because we have to make sure that the motor really works to the, the way a mountain biker pedals. Okay. And we don't have a bike for that for, for now, but uh, that's, uh, there's no reason tried, why it wouldn't work. Have you work. tried it in a mountain bike yet or not? No, no, no. Not at all? No. Okay. But we, but we know it's uh, just some software adjustment and it will work. Okay, yeah. But yeah, a really interesting system. Four years in development, I think you said. Five years of development. Five, five yep. years in development. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's been coming for a long time, but this is the first time it's broken cover. It's really interesting yep. to ride it. And thanks, Maxine, for having us over in France. You're and, uh, welcome. 
and showing us the system. It's been a been really interesting to look at what's been going on at Mavic. Uh, have a look around your lovely new building, and um, yeah, see all the new innovation. That's great. It's great to see you innovating again. <laughs> yep, <laughs> we're super happy to finally be able to unveil this innovation, and we hope everybody will like it. Brilliant. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And there we have it, episode 49 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. So yeah, we're now at episode 49, which means the next one is a big one, episode 50. Um, we're going to try and do something special for it, so listen out for exactly what we're going to be doing. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I think continuing Ryan's series on um, you know the state of British racing and including the RAS is really important because British racing isn't you know when people think about it they generally don't really tend to think about you know kind of how Ireland works and you know Ireland has a massive cycling heritage so being able to hear Jeff talk about all of that stuff um, and the history of the race and how the challenges that he's got kind of coming up is really kind of eye-opening and something that I think that we need to think about uh, you know a bit more Um, and then also you know just hearing Dave talking e-bikes, you know, when you've got somebody that passionate about this kind of new technology is, um, yeah, it was great. And especially just kind of hearing it as they're kind of going along as well is just, yeah, really fun, basically. I think it sounds great. Um, and I hope that you guys enjoyed it. So, yeah, as always, if you want to get in touch, you can find us uh, on email. Just send us an email to podcast at road.cc. Or you can find us on social media. Just search for Road CC and uh, drop a comment. So until next time, cycle safe. Bye.